I invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to Psalm 62. Psalm 62, a, a Psalm of David. We're not sure uh, any specific occasion that, uh, that uh, occasion of this psalm, uh, David, to write this psalm. We're not told that, as we are in so many psalms. But, um, but it's a psalm of, of David in a time of trouble and, and taking great comfort in the sovereignty and the love of his God. Psalm 62, let's give our attention to God's word. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge, is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, I thank you that uh, so long ago your servant David sat down to pen this, this poem, this prayer, and uh, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, he wrote of things concerning the wonder of our saving God and the comfort that we can take in you. And Father, I pray that tonight that same Spirit would open our eyes and hearts to receive this truth, that Lord, our, our lives could be affected, transformed by it. And we'll thank you, Father. For your word is true, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin by asking you a question tonight. And boys and girls, maybe I'll start with you. Um, boys and girls, are you ever afraid of anything? Are you ever afraid at all? Thunderstorms, I remember when, uh, I won't say which one of my sons, uh, when he was young, uh, but David hated car washes. <clears throat> He had heard the story of the flood in Sunday school, and he was convinced that every time we went through a car wash that it was happening as we were, uh, as we were speaking. And um, So boys and girls, there's, there's things that we can easily be afraid of, right? Uh, but, but boys and girls, big people get scared too. And, and uh, I just wondered, uh, for the big people here, what, what makes you anxious? What makes you afraid? What, what are the, th- the things that you fear? I was uh, just reading again in Job chapter 3, 25, the thing that I feared has come upon me. The thing that I feared has come upon me. And um, it'd be fun, or maybe not fun, it'd be very enlightening sometimes to sit together and just talk together about what are the things that, we're, that we most fear in our life. Um, w- would it be some secret sin revealed? Would it be um, being in a, in a 
place of particular vulnerability? Uh, would it be um, maybe getting, getting um, sick with cancer, terminally ill? What, what, maybe losing a child, losing a loved one. Uh, there, there are things that people think about, aren't there? Th- things that, uh, nightmares that we have or things that we, are, that we are secretly very afraid of. And um, the psalm tonight calls us, in a sense, to live without fear. Mark Furtado asked the question this way in his commentary. He says, where does the ultimate source of your well-being lie? In what or in whom do you place your trust to get you out of hard times and keep you safe? What provides you with a profound sense of security in life? The, the sad thing is that I think for many of us, we wouldn't know how to answer that question. Because we really don't have a profound sense of security in life. Uh, We live with nagging doubts and secret fears and chronic worries. And they come and they go depending on the circumstances, but they never really go away. It's just sort of a, a, a cloud that goes with us. And many of us, if we're completely honest, uh, would confess that we're not sure what profound, lasting security actually feels like. Well, Psalm 62 shows us the way. As I said, we're not sure when David wrote this psalm. Some think it might be when uh, Absalom was trying to take over the throne. Uh, some think it's when he was running from, uh, from Saul. Others think it's just uh, David being the king and people out to take him down. Um, But whatever the immediate context, uh, it's clear that David is experiencing trial, trouble, that there are enemies, and they are are actually out to get him. Uh, I I remember someone saying once, just because uh, you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you. And uh, David is, um, David's facing real enemies. He's not being paranoid. He's experiencing real trouble. It's not a figment of his imagination. He's not imagining things. And, and he's living in the context of a real life in this real world, just like we do. We live in this real world. And in this real world, David finds rest in the reality of his God, and, and he calls us to do the same. There are two main points this morning. First, we'll look at the act of faith, and then the deduction of faith, the conclusion that faith draws. First, the act of faith. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. There's a couple of things I want to point out about the act of faith. It's a, it's a, first of all, a resting trust in God, a resting trust in God. Other uh, um, translations read it this way, truly my heart waits silently for God, or I wait quietly before God. Well, what does that mean, to wait quietly before God? Well, it, it might be helpful to just Um, compare it to its opposite, which would be a life of chronic worry, a chronic anxiety, fretting. Uh, We all know what it feels like to be to be worried, to be and restless in your spirit. There's you're just not at you're not at rest inside. And and you can feel that something's wrong. And maybe you don't even know exactly what it is, but there's there's a restlessness in your soul, inner turmoil, disquiet. It's hard to sit still. It's difficult to sleep. Well, what David is talking about is the exact opposite of that. It is um, to be consciously in the presence of God, sensing that the Lord is, is there, the Lord is near, and to have a deep spiritual rest. Notice he says, my heart 
waits silently for God. That, that David's inner person is experiencing this wonderful quiet, this peace, this calm. And, and it's a quietness, a calm that, that's saturated with meaning. Uh, Derek Kidner in his commentary asks, oh, why, why is he silent? How can he be silent? And Kidner suggests, well, maybe it's because the words have all been said. Or perhaps no words will come. And the issue rests with God alone. It's interesting to note there is no prayer in this psalm. It's one of the very few psalms where there's no petition, there's no, there's no uh, praise in that specific sense, where David is, 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 is speaking to the Lord. There's, there's, um, there's no real prayer here, but the absence of prayer doesn't suggest a lack of trust, but the the exact opposite. David is able to rest in silence because he doesn't need to speak. He's, he's resting in the confidence that his life and every circumstance is actually truly in the hand of God. And he's content to, to have it that way. Able to rest in that. Calvin, John Calvin writes in his, uh, that the silence intended is that composed submission of a believer in which he acquiesces in the promises of God, gives place to God's word, bows to God's sovereignty, and suppresses every inward murmur of dissatisfaction. David has his eyes fixed squarely on the Lord and is able to be quiet there, uh, trusting the promises of God, Letting God's truth be the truth of his life. Bowing to the sovereignty of God. The act of faith is a resting trust. It's not just believing things about God. It's the act of actually taking those things to ourselves. Notice, secondly, it's a God-saturated trust. The act of faith is a God-saturated trust. The, the, the quiet is rooted in the reality of God and in nothing else. Uh, From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. David has a rich theology of God's care for him, God's providential care. He's got a functioning vocabulary. Um, David can use use as many different images and words um, to speak of the multifaceted glory of God's care for him. It's something he thinks about a lot. Um, if Psalm 18 is a, is a great example of this, where in, in Psalm 18, just listen to all the different phrases that David uses and words he uses to describe the providential care and sovereign protection of God. Psalm 18, verse 1, O Lord, I love you, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. They say that Eskimos have like 30-some different words for snow because they think about snow a lot. David has just in this like eight or nine different expressions to, to try to help us understand what God is to him. And they're all terms of protection, terms of of care, terms of safety and shielding, sheltering. And and if God is actually all of that, well, why why wouldn't we silently 
quietly wait before him. You see, isn't that what trust in this kind of a God would, would actually look like? I, uh, I have used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful. I, I, I remember two different flights on Southwest Airlines where we experienced rough weather. And they were two totally different experiences. On one flight, we were flying into St. Louis, and uh, it was a really impressive storm. The lightning's flashing, huge thunderheads all over the place, and the plane is bouncing around pretty good, and the man next to me is clearly terrified. There is sweat dripping from his face. He's got a death grip on the, 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 the seat um, handles. And um, he's just, he's, he's, he's not enjoying this ride. Another flight... Uh, we're flying over Colorado someplace, and a very similar experience. The plane is bouncing all over the place, and uh, I'm next to a man who's casually reading his newspaper. Not a care in the world. And um, I made some comment to him about uh, the weather, and, and he said, he just started to talk to me about the 737, that he'd studied up on the 737 and, and how it was engineered and, and um, how much power it had. And these things are indestructible. They're tanks. And if the pilot wants to, he just, he just hit the throttle and we're out of here. They're like, they're like fighter jets for passengers. I mean, that's how he's describing this thing. And he goes back to reading. And, and so here you have two very similar situations, two entirely different responses. What's the difference? Well, one man trusted in the airplane. The other man didn't. And the, 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 the act of trust looked like rest, looked like calm. You see, David's waiting before the Lord is he's actually thought about what God is like and what God is for him. And he, he trusts it. God actually does have the whole world in his hands. He, he actually has all the circumstances of my life in his hands. He's not just from a distance kind of casually observing. He's actively engaged ordaining. And so his rest is, is rooted in um, the, the things that he knows, he's absolutely convinced, he's studied up on this, the things that he knows to be true about God. But notice the third thing, that his act of faith, it's a resting trust, it's a God-saturated trust, and thirdly, it's an exclusive trust. There's a word that shows up over and over in the psalm, it's the word only or alone. It shows up five times in the first seven verses. For God alone my soul waits, verse 1. He alone is my rock, verse 2. It's repeated again in verses 5 and 6. David is making a very important point. That the experience of inner stillness and peace is directly related to the, this thought of alone. God alone. He has a singular source of confidence. There's one thing and one thing only that he's actually relying on, resting on. He, he's, and, and that's why he's at peace. You see, he's not trusting in God and his military. He's not trusting in God and the aid of his companions or God and his strategies, God and his abilities, God and his finances. You see, there's no peace in a God and source of rest. Because whatever the and is, you know could fail. The peace comes from an exclusive trust, an exclusive rest. David is, David is telling us in this psalm, I don't have any other rock. I don't have any other fortress. There's no other refuge. I don't have another plan. This is it. This is all I got. For God alone, my soul waits. 
I've cast it all on him. And I don't have a plan B. Someone has, I think, wisely said, he trusts not in God at all who trusts not in God alone. He trusts not in God at all who trusts not in God alone. You see, the source of so much of our worry is because while we want to trust God and think that we, we in, in some sense, are trusting God, we're actually trusting God and something else, our plans, our abilities, our relationships. But God helps us ex- helps, uh, to expose those idols of misplaced trust. And the way he does that is through trials. Mark Furtado, again, in his commentary, says, the idol of misplaced trust is often hard to detect. We think we are trusting God to supply our needs until we are faced with the possibility of losing our job. The anxiety we then experience indicates the presence of a hidden idol, misplaced trust in our job as the source of our security. We think we are depending on God's approval for our sense of personal well-being until we come under the severe criticism of others. The pain we then feel indicates the presence of an idol, misplaced dependence on the opinion of others as a source of our self-worth. Such painful experiences are in reality a true blessing as they give us the opportunity to rid our lives of idols and to grow in dependence on God alone for our security and our life. I bet we could uh, share stories about that too. Tell me a time when the Lord exposed an idol of misplaced trust. You, you believed in God, you were trusting in God, but something happened and it just deeply unnerved you, deeply concerned you, stressed you, uh, you were full of anxiety and fear and anger. Well, that was just a false idol being exposed. It was, it was a God and proposition. And I hope that you can say, uh, I'm thankful that the Lord did that because uh, actually now, I I do trust in God alone. I'm able to let things go. I'm able to to trust that he's at work in my life. That's what God intends. So here's the act of faith. And then secondly, the deduction of faith. Having considered these things that are true about God, David now deducts from that what is true concerning himself. His own situation. Notice he says, I shall not be moved greatly. That word greatly is, is fascinating. Uh, it is very real uh, to how we actually live life, very true to life. Notice uh, David is confident, but his confidence is still tinged with a little fear. God alone is my rock. I will not be moved greatly. I, I may be moved somewhat is the sense of it. The path before me is, it looks really hard. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I believe that God will hold me, but I'm not going to be moved greatly. Well, why, why does he insert this? I, I think the answer is because he's looking at what he's facing. The enemies he's facing are real. And they're vicious. They're cruel. They're committed. Verses 3 and 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. These men are, uh, they, they've maybe sensed a weakness and they're, and they're coming in to take advantage of it. David seems to them maybe a leaning wall and, and, and they're confident a push will, will be the end of it. 
A kidner in his commentary says, evil is attracted to weakness. To give the last push to whatever is leaning or tottering. It's in complete contrast to the goodness which spares the bruised reed. Right? Jesus doesn't bruise uh, the tender reed. Protects it. Goodness, godliness protects weaknesses in other people. The devil takes advantage. Evil takes advantage. Uh, the, the enemies of David, you see, they, they've got an evil intention and a clear strategy. They fully intend to topple him. They, they intend to remove God's anointed from the throne. They've thought carefully about this. They are absolutely committed to this. Boys and girls, maybe you remember the story uh, told in Acts 23 where some Jewish men made a plot and bound themselves by oath that they would not eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Bad idea. Uh, I, it would have been fun to be there. Not fun. It would have been interesting to be there when they finally realized they were not going to be able to kill Paul and, and who was the first guy that went out and got a drink. Um, but that is how committed they were. That's how serious they were. Think about having an enemy like that. Imagine someone rear-ending you at a stoplight. Oh, that would be concerning. But then imagine they backed up, and then they did it again. And then they did it again. And it became clear that their intent was actually to push you out into oncoming traffic where you would be killed or severely wounded. That's a different scenario. That's what David was facing. It is exactly that kind of intent. Now, how do they intend to do it? How do they intend to topple him? Uh, David points to uh, deception. They take delight in lies. They bless with their mouth. So when they, when they see David face to face, uh, they'll bless him. But when they're out and about, they're cursing him. They're talking uh, to other people and trying to destroy him. They, they, they believe, you see, that, that lies will be able to accomplish the task. That's going to be their method. They, they set themselves to purposefully, strategically, and continually lie. And they take delight in it. Now, if you've ever had someone... Uh, going about lying about you, how do you defend yourself? How do you defend yourself against lies? When people say one thing to your face and then they go out and they intentionally, purposefully lie. It's, it's nearly impossible. You, you can't put up a billboard on 131 that says it's not true. Any attempt to defend yourself, right? It, it, it's just an awkward, impossible Situation. It's why the devil loves lies. They're effective. And when we see lies taking place, we just need to see the hand of the devil. As we, as we uh, look around us in the culture in which we live, and we see the lies that are being told, think about just the, the lies told about transgenderism. But there are lies told about all sorts of things. You know that when you're facing a lie, you're facing the work of the devil, his very special demonic work. That's what David's facing. How does he defend himself? Well, he doesn't defend himself. He takes refuge. Notice he turns his thoughts immediately back to God. Back to his rock, verse 5, verse 5. For God alone, my soul, oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. He looks at the circumstance it's real, it's frightening. And then he turns and looks back to God. 
And God is, is more real and God is comforting. There are, there, these uh, words are nearly identical to verses 1 and 2, but there's two slight variations that are significant. One is um, the insertion in verse 5 of the words, O my soul, and, it's, and it becomes an imperative. So instead of saying, my soul waits silently before God, here he says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He's talking to himself. He's charging himself, commanding himself, taking himself in hand. Soul, self, do this thing. Wait in silence before God. Your hope is in Him, and it is in Him alone. Soul, submit to the truth of God. Bow happily before His sovereign power. Wrap yourself in the truth of His promises. Believe His loving purposes. Is your God actually and truly a refuge for you? Have you taken refuge in Him? Is He actually your shield, your high tower, your rock, your hiding place? David is charging himself to do this very thing when it comes to God, to take God as His shield, to take God as His shelter. And then doing that, he says, I shall not be shaken. And notice what's missing. The word greatly. David is saying, I shall not be shaken at all. I'm going to be unmoved. No matter how difficult this might be, God, my rock, will be there with me. Every detail, every instance, every circumstance of my life is actually, truly in the hand of my God who's promised to be a shelter to me. And so he doesn't have to fear. Not if, not if this is true about God. Not if verse 7 is truth. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. It's a wonderful thing to be able to say. On God rests my salvation. All of it my justification and my sanctification and my glorification, it all rests on God. It all depends on Him. It's not that He hasn't called me to participate. He does in, in, in believing and, and in obeying, but, but it rests on God. And if my salvation, my eternal salvation rests on God, then so does all the rest of my life as God promises to be with me and work through me. You see, because David rests in his rock, his refuge, he has confidence. And there's two things specifically about God he points to in verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. God has spoken. God has revealed himself. David has heard it. And this is what David heard. This is what God wants us to know. That power belongs to God. All power belongs to God. And that there's no power that can come against us apart from the will and purpose of God. And to Him belongs steadfast love, faithfulness, never shrinking back, 
always continuing on steadfast, infinite love. Now, friends, let me ask you, isn't this precisely what God intends to tell us in the sending of His Son? I mean, the gospel gives us so many more reasons for profound security, for absolute confidence in God. Jesus is the fullest manifestation of the power and love of God. He has assured us that all authority belongs to Him in heaven and on earth. All of it belongs to Him. He's the ultimate evidence of God's love for us. 1 John 4, 9. In this, God manifests His love for us. God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. What more could we ask, you see, than what God has said? The gospel continually reminds us that this is what God is like, that he is a God of sovereign power and infinite love. And it's exercised in Christ on our behalf for our good. And so we can sing with that old psalm, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known. I don't understand why that is, why me being so unworthy, Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed And I am convinced, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know. And David calls us to exactly that sort of profession. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This isn't just David's experience. This This is the... What he knows and experiences in, the, uh, in his faith in God is, is for all of us. God is a refuge for us, not just for David. And so David encourages us, pour out your heart to him. Talk to God. What are you afraid of? Let God know what you're afraid of. Talk to him about your fears. Talk to him about your anxieties. The, the Bible says cast your anxieties, cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He he actually cares deeply, profoundly. He sent his son for you. And so trust in him at all times, in all contexts. Trust in him. Friends, that's what profound security feels like. That's how profound security works. That God is my rock. God is my salvation. And I will be still and know that God is God. And he's my God in Jesus Christ. I do not need to be afraid. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I thank you so much for this word. Lord, I pray that you would use this word to drive out our fears, drive out our our worries. That we would be people who know the joy of a deep, profound peace. A profound security. As we actually rest in God. Lord, I pray that that our resting would would yield uh, joy and peace, praise, comfort, strength, perseverance. As we wait for the day when Christ will come again. And Father, you know the things that we face, and Lord, we face some scary things. And yet I thank you, O Lord, that all the things that we face are in your hand. 
and we face them under the shelter of your wings. And so we do, we do not need to fear. We can wait and rest quietly in your presence. Lord, I pray that tonight as we lay our heads on our pillows, that we would experience that comfort and that calm as we take you as our refuge and trust in your power and believe in your love for us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's respond singing together 699 from the hymnal, Like a River Glorious is God's Perfect Peace. Now go with the promises of God as you go out into this week, the promise of his grace and love, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, abide with you, strengthen, encourage, and comfort you. 
Till Christ come again. Amen.